I watched them get him out of the car and I'm in the back seat of the cruiser. And all I'm really worried about is I don't want to be in trouble. I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. I'm not really worried about whether he's dead or not. I'm just worried about me. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode. Super excited today to have Mr. Tony Miller with us, who has a, an amazing story I've been fortunate enough to hear a version of, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it as well. But first of all, thanks for taking some time. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Um, first, I just want to start and get some background where you grew up, how life was like as a kid, and um, how you got to where you are now. Okay. Well, um, I grew up in Michigan. I was born there. Uh, I had a great family. Father was awesome. Got along well with my mother. Uh, we moved around a lot. Uh, the greatest thing, that challenge that I had early on was I was a terrible reader. And actually, I didn't read very well at all. And so early on, uh, I had that secret, you know, that you have, and you don't want anybody to know it. And I spent most of my young, till I was in the third or fourth grade, you know, I couldn't read. And uh, I got to about the seventh grade, and then one of my teachers, she was smart enough to figure out that I couldn't read. And... Um, it was about the fourth or fifth school I'd been to, and uh, I sat in the back of the class, and her name was Mrs. Robinson, and uh, she'd go up and down the aisles, and she was a pretty good gal, and she was old, but she was smart. And what I loved about her was that she wasn't going to let people like me get by. I'd been passed along from school to school, grade to grade, and not on her watch. She was not going to let me just be passed along. And she had a friend called Mrs. Lumley. And Mrs. Lumley was a tutor. And she sent me to see Mrs. Lumley. And um, I would ride my bike over there to Mrs. Lumley's house. And I remember the first time that I was there, I looked down the driveway and Seemed like the longest driveway I'd ever seen in my life. And I had to make one of those decisions. Do I ride down the driveway or do I just run away? And believe me, I wanted to run away, but Mrs. Lumley, she stood out there with a plate full of Oreo cookies and enticed me to come on down the driveway. See, she was a pro. She'd done this a lot. <laughs> she was really good at working with 12-year-old kids to come learn how to read. So I went down the driveway, and we went in the house, and I asked Mrs. Lumley, I said, am I ever going to learn how to read? First, first thing out of your mouth was the first question. First question. And she looked out the window and saw my bike, and she looked back at me and looked at the bike, and she said, 
I've never known anybody who could ride a bike who could not learn how to read. And that was life-changing to me. I mean, she gave me hope. And she'd done this, I didn't know this, but she'd done this with lots of other kids. So she was kind of a seasoned pro at it. And I remember when I left there, I went home and I rode no-handed and I was excited about learning how to read. And I went in and I told my parents, I said, you know, this guy's gonna learn how to read. And my father, he knew I couldn't read, but he didn't know what to do about it. And my brother was an A student, and he never had any problem with school. He always got the highest grade and was one of the guys that spoiled the test because he got the highest grade. Now, were you, you said it was a secret outside of your home? It was a secret? Everybody knew inside, or were you? No, they you, didn't know. It was. They were busy. Right. So how what what was that like for you emotionally as a kid? I mean, was it were you in pain? Oh yeah, I was horrified that someone would find out that I couldn't read. And you didn't want to talk to your brother who was the smart one or ever think about I just wanted to be invisible. Okay. Got it. I was embarrassed, I was afraid, I was um I just always felt like I wasn't good enough. And that was one of the things that was really strong because uh, my brother was so smart and uh, my dad was pretty smart. And they never were like, you're dumb. I mean, they never said you're stupid or you're dumb or any of that. Those are things I just picked up because I was fearful of that. I just felt I was dumb and stupid. And uh, I was a hard worker, but I wasn't, I wasn't lazy. And I think that's one of the things that made me want to be successful was I would work as hard as I could for whatever thing I was trying to do. But I just couldn't tell somebody I couldn't read. And we moved a lot. We went from school to school because my dad worked for Chrysler and we got transferred a lot. And, you know, I was in four or five different schools early on before, before I was in the seventh grade. And I didn't really learn to read till I was in the seventh grade. And so you gotta have a lot of make-believe. Sure. You know, and you gotta sit in the back of the room and you, you learn to be invisible. And I think most teachers, um, they love to work with the smart kids. And I sat in the back of the room and just tried not to be a problem. And did I you see of, that they, did they, did any of them notice? And did, did you get any of that? where you felt slighted and weren't worked with or do you just you just stayed low key as much as No, possible? I think I think they would have helped me and all that. I just had gone to a lot of different schools and so I would just be quiet. Always ended up in the back of the room and um, that was go okay for me. I liked that. I like not I like being invisible. It was safer that way. I was always afraid I'd be found out. And that's that's pretty terrifying. Yeah, for sure. So thank God for Mrs. Lumley. Yeah. And later on in life, I found out, um, I met up with Mrs. Lumley in a, uh, one of the department stores, and and um, I'm hugging her and in the middle of this, and I'm crying, and she's crying, and my wife's wondering, who is this woman that he's so embraced with? And I 
told her, this is the woman that taught me how to read. And then my wife's crying. So and there's how many, three people. This is years and years and years later. Oh, yeah, 25, 30 years, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And I think one of the things I learned from that, it's amazing what things we can do for people. I mean, the simplest of things, I think, make a difference in people's life. And sometimes it's just going a small mile or a small something to encourage them to get help or to do something. And I think that's what Mrs. Lumley really taught me was, you can be of value to anyone. If you try and catch yourself uh, being positive with them, encouraging them, everybody gets beat up enough. I don't think they need that from, from me. And so I try and really catch people and be encouraging to them for whatever they're doing. Right. Yeah. So you learn how to read. Yeah. Confidence, I presume, went through the roof or at least. No, I think it was just I was just confident that I could read and I was excited about that. I mean, that was something I never believed I'd be able to read. I just believed I'd be one of those people who could not read. And I would see people who were older who couldn't read, and I thought, that's me. That's where I'm going to be. And so even today, like when I see people learning how to read, nothing's more exciting to me than somebody who gets to learn how to read. So how was the rest of middle school, high school? Um, I think it was good. I was uh, wrestled in the school and I love that because it was a one-on-one -on -one sport. I did pretty well at that and I liked the team but I liked working out and I liked really the camaraderie, the community of people. I found that I really liked that. That part was important to me. So Yeah, that's great. And so where did you, how many times did you, when did you end up settling geographically? Um. I think my father, we, we moved around a lot, and then we ended up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and then we went to Troy, Ohio, so we moved. And that's where I did wrestling, and I did that. And I really got, I did very well at it. So Troy, Ohio became uh, a place that I really enjoyed. And then later on in life, I moved back to Cincinnati because I had friends here and Came back here and found the woman I love, and we got married. So let's talk about after, I mean, just, you know, chronologically, after high school. Yeah. What, uh, where'd life take you? Well, my first marriage, and I've been married three times. My first marriage was to a wonderful woman. We were married about four or five years. And I was drunk every day of that marriage. I mean, I don't remember a second. What age did you get married? We got married when I was 24 and she was 19. And so alcohol was already in the picture? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was well on my way. I was drinking a fifth and a half a day through that. I remember we had a, a son and um, she was at work. And I thought it was okay for me to leave. I mean, this is like a newborn. He's not six months old. 
And I remember thinking that, I mean, where's he going to go? What's he going to do? He's in the crib. I'll just go down the street and have a few drinks. And I believed 100% that was okay. And so when I went down the street um, and left Tony Jr., and when I came back, my wife had come home, and she was stunned that I had just left that child. And that was it for her. My drinking and leaving that child, she just couldn't put up with that. And when she was eight months pregnant, um, I'd thrown her down the stairs, and I didn't remember the next day. She was all beat up, and her face was all puffed up. And I said, man, what happened to you? And she said, you threw me down the stairs. I had no recollection of that at all. And so her parents came over and they moved out. She moved out and she took the baby. And, and I remember I was sitting in the living room and I'm just throwing these plates against the wall. And it was bizarre. I wasn't drunk. I just was crazy. And so every plate that we had in the house, I broke it by just throwing it against the wall and watching it break. And they're moving her out of the house. Well, you're that. doing this. They're still moving. They're moving, and I'm doing this. <laughs> and her parents frisbees. are like, her, her parents are obviously thinking, there's something wrong with this guy, you know. And so. Um, Did she disclose to them what had happened with the uh, stairs? Yeah, she had told them that she had gone down the stairs and that. And they really wanted her away from me, so. Yeah. And she, the funny part today is, I mean, she's a very wonderful person. And uh, she's remarried and she's kind of laughs about the things that she went through with me. She said, you were not a sane person. And not to say that she thinks I'm a sane person today. I wouldn't go that far. But we get along really well. And, That's great. Um, she knows that I'm sober, and, and that's a big thing to her. Were you defiant at the fact that she wanted to leave or, or why she wanted to leave? No, I don't think so at all. I think I was relieved that that responsibility, that seemed to be a lot of responsibility to me. Was there a thought in your mind that there may be a problem with alcohol? I mean, were you reasoning with yourself that— this might not be the best thing for me, or was it a, a typical just? No, I I really thought that I was just a social drinker. I didn't see I didn't see any problem at all. Yeah. Okay, so how how does it progress? Life and alcoholism. Well, I'm a terrible driver to begin with. <laughs> okay. And so I had totaled I don't know six or eight cars, and and uh, they didn't give DUIs back then. They just pull me over and put the keys in the visor and and drive me home, and then I'd come back and get the car. And uh, I, I was humored by the fact that that they didn't think it was serious enough at that time. Today, if you did that, you'd be hauled away and go away to jail for a while. Mm -hmm. But they didn't do that back then. They just drove you home, and so that was good for me because I could just keep doing it. And the final straw for me was I was on Beachmont Avenue and I'd been drinking and I'd had dinner and in Milford at the at this restaurant and I went there every night. And this night though I left early um, 
and I had an accident on Beachmont Avenue. And I've been, have no idea how I got there or what I was doing, but I remember, the last thing I remember, I'm looking down at the speedometer, I'm going 100 miles an hour, and this guy pulls out in front of me. And I swerve to miss him, and he swerves to get out of my way, and, and I just can't miss him. And then I'm sitting in the back of a cruiser, and the policeman comes back to me and says, I think he's dead. Now, I wasn't worried about me or him. I just didn't want to be in trouble. How old were you at this point? I'm 28. Okay. I'm 28 years old, and he's being hauled. They get the, lo- the jaws of life. They get him out of the car. And they rush him to the hospital, and they, they think he's going to die. Were you coherent enough to watch that happen? I watched them get him out of the car, and I'm in the back seat of the cruiser. And all I'm really worried about is I don't want to be in trouble. I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. I'm not really worried about whether he's dead or not. I'm just worried about me. And so he lives, and I don't have enough insurance. And so I go to court. And I'm supposed to be able to tell him what happened. And I've read the police report, and it doesn't make any sense at all to me. So I go in, and I have to testify. And I testify, and he doesn't do a very good job of testifying either. So we both do a terrible job. I'm sure he'd been drinking because he pulled out, and then he backed up to get out of the way. So I'm sure we were both drunk. So we were both took care of our own expenses. Because my insurance company said, you got $10,000 we're covering you for, it, and that's it. Well, that doesn't even fix your door, you know. So anyway, it all worked out, and I was um, got done with that. And I'm still, and I'm not drinking. That was the last drink I'd ever had, that I had. And I just decided I'd go six months at a time, or I wouldn't drink. And I remember when I was on this quest not to drink, I just thought, you know, if you can go six months without a drink, that proves you're not an alcoholic. Now, I don't know who told me that, but that's what I thought. I really thought that was true. Did you have anybody chirping in your ear, any family members saying you need to stop or any thought of alcoholism? Or were you just kind of negotiating this on your own? I just was a bad driver. It never came into my mind that I was a bad, that I was an alcoholic. And what happened to me was I, I thought if I could go six months and be sober, then that would prove that I'm not an alcoholic. And so I had a friend who, who had an office. I'd go over there and visit him, and, and uh, he had a gun in his drawer, his top right-hand drawer, and he'd shown that to me, and and I thought, well, there's only one reason that this guy would show me this gun, and that is that if life got too tough, I could shoot myself. And I remember that I was six months sober, and, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to get in my car again, and I'm probably going to drink, and I'm probably going to kill somebody. And I just really didn't want to kill anyone. And so I was in his office, and... And uh, I'd wrote down a list of three things. 
um, three options. Number one, get drunk. Number two, shoot myself. And number three, go to AA. But I write that down on the very bottom corner, and, and I basically had heard of AA. And I don't even know where, but I didn't know anybody in AA. I didn't know anything about it. And I thought it was probably for other people, not for me. And so I make the decision after making this list that the, the only thing for me is to shoot myself. Because I know I'm going to get in the car, I'm going to get drunk, and I'm going to kill somebody. So I take the gun out of the drawer and and um, and I put it in my mouth. And I'm going to pull the trigger on three. And I get my eyes closed and one, two. And I feel this hand on my right shoulder. And I'm in this locked office, and I'm the only one in there. And I hear this voice say, why don't we just go to AA? And I think that's so silly. It's just me. But I put the gun down, and I, I look up where AA is. It's 10 minutes away. I put the gun back in the drawer and straighten up the area and look it up and drive over and I get there and there's a couple of guys there and I go inside and and they're laughing and they're carrying on and I, I just am stunned that they're having such a great time and I and I tell them straight out I'm, I'm there on serious business and I get to know those guys a little bit and they take me around and they introduce me to some folks and and I leave. And they say, well, why don't you come back tomorrow? And I go, I don't know, I gotta have this done because my plan is to shoot myself before five o'clock because I got a bar in this guy's office. And you told him this? I said that, yeah, I told him that I was in the process of shooting myself. Okay. And these guys said that they understood completely and They'd been there. And so they talk, took me around and I met some other folks and thought it was great for them. And uh, I went home and I got a good night's sleep and I was going to go over and finish what I started the day before. And I thought I'd just stop by the 405 Oak Street there and see if there's anything going on. And, those guys aren't there. And I'm stunned because I thought for sure they'd be there. But we were, we didn't have a meeting or anything. I just thought, well, these guys are going to be there for, for me. For you, right. Yeah, yeah, just for me. And uh, so they weren't. So I go in anyway, and there's some other guys there, and they start showing me around and talking to other people and doing this and um, – I get the beauty of meeting other people and 
seeing, and, and I'm really enjoying them, but I still think this is really for them, not for me. I'm just a bad driver. I'm not an alcoholic. And, and then I go home and I get a good night's sleep and I, I find myself coming back again and again. And I never see those two guys that had sat down with me and talked with me and told me what they were doing and how they were doing it. And I just remember that I got laughing with them more than I ever had before, that I really enjoyed what they said and got along. And, and that was, you know, that was 40 years ago that I went there with those guys. You know, I've been sober 40 years and I've never seen those two guys. One time. One time only for a couple hours. And I know today that, at least I believe, that those were angels. And I believe had those angels not been there, I would have shot myself. And I, I believe walked that Walked in, there's... walked out, and gone about, you know, yeah. said you went, and then, but they were there when you walked through the door. Exactly. And I believe they've been, I believe that angels are there all the time for us. And I think how many times there are angels that help me in all sorts of things. You know, I know I couldn't stay sober for 40 years on my own. And I meet people all the time, and sometimes I meet them, and it's the oddest situation, and I never see them again. And I believe that they're angels that come and help. And make an impact on your life. And make an impact on my life. And I think they're teaching me that I can make a difference in other people's life. And when I live my life serving other people, I have a really great life. But when it becomes all about me, and don't think that I don't make life all about me, because I do. But when I'm serving other people, my life just works a thousand times better. A thousand times. Now, when you got tapped on the shoulder that day, yeah. do you believe that was God? I do. And was that your first true relationship and the start of a relationship or belief that there might be something else out looking out for you? Absolutely. Um, I didn't believe it then. You know, when I was... 19, my dad went in for triple bypass surgery. And my mom and dad were in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and my dad's like, hey, this isn't going to be a big deal. It was the sixth, uh, fourth or fifth, maybe sixth operation that this hospital had ever done with a triple bypass. It was all new stuff. I remember my dad said, I had a test at UC, and he's like, ah, go back and take that test, man. I'm, I'm fine. God, I'm in God's hands. My mom's like, oh, yeah, he's in God's hands. So I get in the car, and I drive back, and I take that dumb test. And I call up to my dad, and he'd had this surgery. And I said, man, how do you do? My uncle got on the phone. He said, I am so sorry, man. He didn't make it. Well, that was proof for me right then and there where there was no God. And if there was a God, I didn't want any part of him. I just didn't want any part of him. 
And so my mom, she's real funny. She Every day she said, you know, it was just his time to go home with God. My mom is loving and caring. She's closer to God after that happened than ever. She did not believe it was a bad thing. Sure, she loved my dad, and she was sad about it, but she said it was his time to go home. Steadfast in her belief. Steadfast, which yeah. kind of made me mad. Oh, I imagine. Losing your dad. I lost my dad. How old were you? I was 19. Did that perpetuate kind of going off the rails for you? Oh, I think that just gave me permission to be drunk. I was drunk every day from then on until I was 28. And you started a very successful business, and it, it, it sounds, from my recollection, around the same time. Yeah, I was 19 when I started the business. I'd been cleaning some bars at UC, but when my dad died, I went into this business full time. And I had to laugh. I was in this business, and I didn't know anything. And there was this older gentleman that was really smart, and he'd been in the cleaning a long time, and he was my first employee, and, and I didn't know how to mop, or I didn't know how to sweep a floor. And I'm just mopping over broken glass and puke and all that stuff, and, and he's kind of laughing, and he said, let me show you how to do this. Because I had started the business because of crows. I was the guy at 2.30 in the morning laying in the puke. And which, the broken which was glass. a local bar? Yeah, it was yeah. in Clifton. And it was my very first customer. And I had to do it. I had to clean it because I had to pay my bar tab. And I cleaned several other, four or five other bars because I had four or five other bar tabs. So that's how I started this business was in the bars that I drank and owed bar tabs to. And I found that there were people to help me there. It was so funny. There are people to help me all along the way, and, and I see that regularly, that there's people to help. And, and I think God wants me to help other people. I mean, I kind of learned that it's better to serve than receive, and I never really understood what that meant, but I do today. I get an opportunity to make a difference for other people. And when I stay into that program of being of service to people, then I'm going to have a good life. When life is all about Tony Miller, it's not a very good life. It's interesting because um, it, it is a mental illness, and you said an incurable one, which is very true. Um, but it doesn't take long for it to go off the rails. You know, you've been sober 40 years, which is, you know, congratulations. It's phenomenal, big inspiration to myself and a lot of others, but um, it's every day. It's every day. You got to keep your foot on the gas and your mind laser focused. Um, but you do have a pretty methodical uh, 4 a.m. wake up call. Right. Yeah. Take us through a, a day of. Tony? Well, I get up every morning at 4 o'clock and I get on the treadmill and work out. And I go to a 6 a.m. meeting in Kenwood and then another one. 
I'm a seven to 10 meeting a week person. And sometimes I'll move those meetings around. Maybe it'll be at the seven o'clock and the eight o'clock, but I need 10 meetings a week to have a good week. And I don't know why that is, but that's just what it takes for me. Somehow I need that community of people. I need to have people around me and I need to be serving other people. And if, and if I don't go there and, and be a value to other people, then my life just doesn't work. And I have to laugh because people think sometimes because I have 40 years of sobriety that I have a clue of what I'm doing. And I don't. I just know I have to go to those meetings and be of service to other people. And when I do that, then my life works. When I don't, and my wife's not afraid to say to me, hey, why don't you go to a meeting today? And I remember one day I'd been at the office and I'd been in a meeting and a couple of my friends that I work with, they said, why don't you take the day off and go to as many meetings as you can? And that's their way of saying, you have a bad attitude, Tony Miller. <laughs> cranky. And go fix it. And so I think, I think the great part about AA is I get to go every day and serve other people and work on being a better person. And that business that you started long, long ago to pay your bar tabs is still thriving today with your wife. Yes. And you guys are, uh, you actually clean the building that we're sitting in right now, which is, it's just a great testimony uh, to what, you know, my father always said, stick to but uh, just showing up. I, I think that's the funny part, too, is this business that got started in alcoholism and laying on the bar and puke and broken glass turns into a business with 650 full-time employees um, that clean about 70 or 80 percent of the downtown market. And I would have never guessed that that would happen and that it happens and we have so many great people that have great opportunity for advancement and growth and to be able to have a business that that's successful and does well from being a drunk is just crazy to me. And I think that's what God can do. It can, God, I really believe, can take any of us and get us sober, get us back in life, and get us serving other people. Because I think once I learned that it wasn't all about me, then my life got better. And when we get to, when I get to do great things for other people, whether that be anonymously or that we get to make a real difference in their life, then life's worth living. But when it's all about me, I'm going to be crazy and I'm not going to be of any value. And I love seeing people grow and have opportunity and learn how to read. I think one of the greatest gifts that Mrs. Lumley ever gave me was to be able to read. And I'm convinced that without her, I would have never learned how to read. But it was much more than that, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was you know, a liberating experience, not only, you know, academically, but for your psyche as a young kid. Because that's a, you know, seventh grade, 
you know, there's a lot of peer pressure, a lot of bullies, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, trying yeah. to navigate a life of moving around and and different things. So I, I think it was much, much more than that. Absolutely. I had a bike and I called my bike Red Racer and I would get on that bike Red Racer and ride over to Mrs. Lumley's house and and she would always encourage me. She was always an encourager. No matter what I was doing or how I did it, she always was an encourager. And when I would leave there, I would leave there and ride home no-handed because she had told me that the more I rode that bike, the faster I'd learn how to read. And so I took to heart doing that. And I find myself in other things in life doing that same thing I did with Red Racer. You know, I got involved with it and did it. And then before I knew it, I could read. And without Mrs. Lumley's encouragement, and her ability to tell me that if I could learn how to ride a bike, I could read. I mean, she made it so simple for me. And I find myself trying to do that for other people, of being able to, to relate to them of what they can do. And I've always had people reach out and help me. I've just been blessed in that way that people have tried to help. So... Uh... First of all, I think everybody should have the opportunity to meet you, yourself, and your wife, Mary, who's a, a phenomenal human being. But both of you are extremely special people. Um, but when you when you got to that third relationship, right? As far as the alcoholism and the the germ or whatever you want to call it, did you make that a priority that she knew that that was part of the deal? Oh yeah. How did that go down? Well, I've been given three gifts, alcoholism, three marriages, and diabetes. And my wife, Mary, uh, she, she knew right away that I was a character. <laughs> and when we met, our daughter, her daughter was six years old, and, and I had singled Mary out for someone that I wanted to get to know. And I was working my way through a crowd and pretending like I was backing into Mary's butt. <laughs> and her six-year-old daughter came up and kicked me in the shin as hard as she could. And I should have known right then and there that Becky was trouble. But I didn't catch on. So Mary and I started dating, had a great relationship and our values were the same. And she'd been married twice before and had children. She had three children, I had two. And it just kind of something, I think God helped put us together so that we could have a great life together. Our values are very good, very the same. I have to laugh because people come up to me all the time and they go, I love your wife, Mary. I know her. I go, okay. Good, good. What's your name? And I think that's really amazing for me to have somebody that really is great with me and the kids and the family and that she's out in the community so much. I mean, I can't think of how many people have just said, I know Mary, I love her. And I, I cannot remember all the people's names to try and tell me how much they love Mary. But that relationship, I think, is one of the key things that, that being sober has given me. 
Well, you you run a, a a large organization, like you said, and I came over to see you right before Christmas. It was actually on the day of your employee celebration, and you were very gracious with your time. And Mary's running around like crazy, but not only did she, you know, she came up, gave me a hug. We had met a few times years ago. Just genuinely a very sweet person but then you as you took me through you see the you know you're going to need some more space for the trophies and the <laughs> the accolades for both of you but mary's a very well-known you know business person in the community speaker but when you're real and genuine it's just a it's such a nice addition to the whole package you know so I know you say that you're lucky, and I tend to agree with you. Well, Mary was a single mom with three kids and the hardest worker I'd ever seen, and she just really wanted a to make a difference for people. And she is on a mission to change people's lives. And she speaks all the time, and she's for women and single women and single mothers— She's just out there wanting to show people, hey, look, you can do this. My sister runs our family business, and I know she's been an inspiration and mentor for my sister Tara as well. So yeah. uh, that's just a, a small snapshot. But um, Okay, so as far as what keeps you healthy every day, now, I know the diabetes part of it. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about health and fitness and wellness has, has become a big part of your regimen. Right. Like I said, the three gifts I have are alcoholism, three marriages, and diabetes. And the alcoholism has driven me to be sober and that part. The three marriages of Mary and I both being on our third marriage, we worked very hard at it. And I want to tell you that tough conversations are not my best thing. And uh, as an example, yesterday, Mary had to have a tough conversation with me, and I was squirming in my chair. And I really didn't want that tough conversation. But she loved me enough to be able to have a tough conversation with me. And I'd like to say that I get better and better all the time with those tough conversations, but I still do a lot of squirming. And I'm a little better about having tough conversations, but I think that's the key for, for me, gratitude and tough conversations for a great marriage. And I love we go to counseling and all those things. We do the things that it takes to build that relationship and not just assume it's going to be good. And for health... I mean, diabetes is really a blessing because I have to exercise, I have to eat right. I'd lost 50 pounds, and I'm on the treadmill, and I work out a lot. And the reason is because I want to keep my feet. And I've told this story where I have this great doctor, Dr. Megenheim, and uh, he told me that if I didn't lose 50 pounds, he would end up cutting my feet off. And I believed him. 
And I, I lost about 10 pounds in the beginning. And then he said, man, you're not taking this serious enough. You, you've crossed the line into diabetes and that's a serious situation. And most people don't do anything about it. And then I went and I looked up online what diabetes, you know, what that looked like when they had to take a toe off or a foot off or an ankle off. And he wasn't kidding. He was really serious about it. And so I looked that up and then I got serious about doing it. I imagine. And every 120 days I go in for a blood test and I see him and he goes over my numbers and they're good, but they're only good because of him telling me about taking my feet off. That's a real visual that I've never been able to let go of. And I love that guy because he's he's tough. He's a great doctor, but he's not afraid to tell you what's really coming. I want him to be softer, but he's <laughs> he, he it's not in his style. Right. Um so I remember when we met, I was telling you I'm kind of I have a support group. I sporadically go to meetings, but, you know, kind of searching through my, um, my recovery. And uh, one of my things was an hour is not enough for me. An hour long, 12 step meeting, I can't get my juices flowing. And, and I just, it, it rang true to me. You said, well, that's why I go to seven or 10 a week. That's seven or 10 hours that I get. And that always stuck with me since we met and I, I think about that often but uh, it's your good testimony of w doing what it takes and 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 not wanting to do things and god telling you to do stuff and just showing up and i think that's it's all we can do and being willing to listen yeah i god tells me a lot of things and i try and ignore them but he pushes me along and I think that's the great part about God. I don't, I'm not a great listener, but when he's shoving me along and showing me, like, I'm a much better person when I go to seven to 10 meetings a week. My life just works better. And I never want to go. When I get up in the morning, I'm like, I, I really don't want to go. I don't want to do that. But seven to 10 meetings is, is really a solid place. And, I, and I've gone to as many as six meetings in a day. And I love the part that I'm allowed to go to as many meetings as it takes for that day. And somebody said to me one day, well, isn't that kind of copping out or doing that? I said, I don't know. I just know that, that I'm a better person by going to those meetings. And if it takes six for me to go and feel better about my life and what I'm doing, then that's what I need to do. And I've seen a lot more people go to meetings, and I just love the fact that the program works. And I see that every day. I'm reminded by it, by people who are going to meetings and how great their life is. And there's always something going on in life. And I'm just grateful that I get to go to meetings and talk to other people. And, and as long as I go to meetings, I got a shot at this thing. And when you don't, let's say you only get five in, do, do you feel yourself? I mean, what happens? you f feel the the antsiness and, uh, you know, being the self-centeredness and resentments and all that stuff, just, uh, just, it's like not controlling your diabetes. It's, it's, it kind of just starts to creep back in. And yeah, I think it's one of those things that 
if I go to those meetings, I'm going to be the be- a better version of myself. If I don't go, everything bothers me. Like something my wife might say, it might just go right through me. If I'm going to enough meetings, it doesn't phase me. If I, when I'm going to enough meetings, I'm the best me. And I don't know why that is, but if I don't go to enough meetings, I'm going to be crazy. And I'm going to drive everybody around me crazy. And the things that bother me are silly. And sometimes I have to laugh at things that I have let me let bother me and fester in me for days. And my wife will say, I think when you go to meetings, you're just a nicer person. Hey, that's no truer proof in the pudding that it works. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Well, this has been a treat. I, well, I, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I appreciate the time and... uh You're an inspiration for many, so keep it up. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.